Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today on The Zamzo Show. I am your host, Callie Zamzo, and I am particularly happy today because we're going to be talking about wild birds on today's show. And in particular, we're going to be talking about Treasure Valley wild birds in wintertime. So I'm very excited. Our guest today is a wild bird expert. Um, she's a friend of mine. So please welcome Heidi Ware Carlisle. Big mouthful. Heidi Ware Carlisle. It's <laughs> a lot of R's there. Um, she is the education director for Intermountain Bird Observ- Observatory. Boy, I'm bumbling today. <laughs> welcome to the show, Heidi. How are you? Thank you. Good. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm very excited to have you here. It's, yeah. it's fun to see you. Um, I think the last time that we had you in uh we had a little talk about baby and and other fun things going on in your life is everything going well with you oh yeah got a three-nager and an almost one-year-old now so pretty crazy (laughs) three-nager oh my gosh Mm -hmm. that is funny I I do think you know people thought they say that terrible twos are bad but threes are very challenging very super fun at the same time (laughs) that's right every age is yeah I've got a 16 year old and believe it or not (laughs) she is wonderful I enjoy her there are some wonderful things about her right at this time as well so that's awesome yeah every stage has its you know, they're each mixed blessings, right? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really glad to have you here today, particularly talking about wild birds in winter. I find that, because um, I am, I, you know this about me, I'm, I'm a wild bird enthusiast. I've got yeah. my feeders out, and my husband and I both um, have a lot of joy watching the birds. This time of year, I feel particularly good about being a bird feeder and mm-hmm. somebody who's caring for wild birds. So before we get going too far down the road, um, could you just start by kind of um, helping us understand, like, what, what does Intermountain Bird Observatory do? And like, you know, what, what is it that you do? Yeah, totally. Um, so the Intermountain Bird Observatory is a part of Boise State University. So we're a research unit within the biology department, but we kind of function like a nonprofit. So we do a lot of conservation work, um, protecting the birds of Idaho, um, getting more data and information about them so that we're able to protect them. And then paired with that, um, my job is to do a lot of education and outreach. So, so sharing what we're learning, Um, And then getting the community involved um, hands-on. So whether that's planting some plants hands-on for some habitat restoration or actually getting to hold a little bird at our research station. Uh, We are catching and tagging these birds and then letting them go back into the wild. And so if you visit us in the summertime or the fall, uh, people get to be really, really hands-on and and hold a little bird before it uh, goes back to its day. So. That's fun. I, I want to give a little plug for you do post things um, on social media. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, you have really cool pictures of people getting to handle wild birds. Oh, yeah. Um, it looks like a fantastic experience. I still have not had a chance to do that. But um, but I'm going to one of these days. You I, have I, to. Yeah. It's yeah. so fun. Really, really unique, um, fun experience for people to get to do. And, you know, yeah, you know, they just have to volunteer to do it. And yeah. you'll you'll hook them up and, and yeah. let them do it. So that's uh, such a cool thing. Very fun. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about birds and the cold. Um, so can you help us understand maybe ways that wild birds struggle this time of year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, each time of year has its different challenges for birds. Uh, a lot of our research happens during migration when they're kind of you know, pushed to their limit physically, you know, almost running a marathon, making these long journeys, um, and transitioning over from their busy breeding season where they were busy raising babies and facing those challenges. Well, in the wintertime, they're facing the challenge of finding food, staying warm, 
um, in Idaho at least, when, when it gets nice and cold in the winter, um, and watching out for predators. So those are kind of their, their main goals in life right now, are to survive through the winter, make it to that next breeding season um, in tip-top condition. So making sure they have lots of food uh, during this hard time with the cold weather. Okay. And does the does the food need to change? Is it different from season to season? Do we need to be, as as people who are feeding the birds, should we be making adjustments? Uh, I don't know about making adjustments, but the winter, this is the time of year where uh, my husband and I feed birds the most um, because a lot of birds this time of year eat seeds. Um, in the summertime, for example, black-capped chickadees and song sparrows, um, they're eating a lot of caterpillars and insects. There's lots of nice juicy bugs available and they switch over in the wintertime to eating seeds. So most of the birds that you'll see in the wintertime have kind of switched their diet at least a little bit, um, and a lot of species switch completely, so change over from bugs to seeds. So perfect time of year to, even if you haven't been feeding birds at all this year, start feeding now because uh, you'll get a lot of really good variety, and the birds, of course, appreciate it. You know, this is a time of year when they need a lot of food, so... Absolutely. Um, I think I've probably told this story before, but when I very first got into um, wild bird feeding, I got a free feeder with mm. feed. Yeah, nice. And I hung it up in the tree, and it was in the middle of winter. Mm-hmm. And I was so bummed because nothing. Mm-hmm. I got lots of squirrels, but I had no <laughs> birds. And I, I was like, what gives? And then somebody said, do you have water out for them? Water that is that is yeah. not frozen? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, no. And so I put that out and I had a little, like one of those de-icers that, mm-hmm. that stays in there. I still have the same one. It's still working after all these years. But anyway, it, it keeps the water melted. And all of a sudden, birds came. And I was like, that was the key ingredient. And now I've got I probably have a dozen feeders in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> and my husband's probably listening saying, you know, it's really, he's the one who manages them. Um, I enjoy them a lot, but he is the one who kind of directs nice. the bird feeding at our house. He household. does the work. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, so is that, was that the key? Like getting a little bit of, is, is water an issue this time of year, I guess? Water is huge. And water is a really great way to attract birds that don't eat seed in the wintertime. So things like robins and cedar waxwings and yellow rumped warblers are here in the wintertime, but they're mostly focused on berries. Um, Mm. So you can plant plants that have berries. That's a great way to attract these birds. Um, Junipers will attract all of those species I just mentioned. Um, But having water for them available is a great way to get to see them up close. And yeah, on these really cold days when the the low temperatures below 20 degrees it's really hard for them to find water so they really appreciate it okay um, and they'll even take baths in the winter time too so i've noticed that yeah. I'm, I'm, it's not I'm just to drink <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so so when you say berries it plants that have berries you're talking like the ones that like the are, like you can see the berries right now in mm-hmm. winter time yeah. so not not necessarily i mean obviously during the summertime berries are also an attractant but winter yeah. time you're talking particularly plants that have winter berries. Is that a yeah? So a term? lot of <laughs> a lot of plants will hold on to berries into the winter time. Um, so uh, like hawthorn trees and some of the little crab apple trees that have smaller uh, fruits mm-hmm. are really great for birds. Uh, hackberry is a good one. Uh, I have a lot of um, serviceberry and snowberry at my house that has done really well. Okay. Um, and then junipers. A lot of different bird species like junipers. Uh, one of my favorites, Townsend solitaire. I didn't know they existed until I started hanging about, out with bird watchers because they're just little gray birds, hmm. um, but they're beautiful and they sing in the wintertime, which is unusual. Oh. Um, they actually will find a juniper tree and sing to protect it um, as their territory. And so you'll hear them singing in the winter and it's this beautiful kind of bubbly 
uh, really long song. So they're a really fun one too. But yeah, I'll listen for that. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, um, we have a, a we have a bird watching book that's Birds of the Pacific Northwest, and yeah. we have our little sticky notes, and we you know we get to. Every once in a while, we're like, "What's that?" And we look it up, and a lot of times, it's it's a it's a common bird. It just looks a little bit different than what we're used to, or something. Yeah. We'll be like, "Oh wait, I guess that's still that the same bird we usually see. It just a little it looks a little different." Yeah. Um, but we love that. It's it's really fun. Um, my daughter is involved with that too, so all three oh, of cool. us are on the lookout constantly. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, cool. All right. So um, so talking a little bit about obviously this is a, a cold time of year. Do birds have particular strategies for staying warm? Yeah, so often uh, I'll have people say like, oh, I have a really huge bird on my feeder or a really tiny bird on my feeder. Um, And it's maybe not necessarily that the bird's body is a different size, but they can fluff their feathers up to keep warm. Um, So you'll often see in the wintertime really fat little birds. Um, So juncos especially are one that I think about where they'll really fluff fluff those feathers big. Um, and it works the same as a puffy jacket that we would wear. Okay. So they're trapping warm air against their body, keeping themselves warm. And man, wouldn't that be nice if we had a built-in jacket that (laughs) if it was too hot, we could slick it down. And then if we got cold, we could puff it back up. Yes. That's what these birds are doing in the wintertime. I I will think about that, like the built-in puffy jacket. Yeah. That's cute. (laughs) Oh, fun. I love that imagery. Um, okay, well, um, it's almost time for a break, so I want to remind everybody that you're listening to the Zamzos Show, and we are talking with Heidi Ware Carlisle, um, who is the education director, education, yeah, yeah okay, yeah. Um, at the Intermountain Bird Observatory. Look at that. When I slow down, I can say it all without <laughs> mumbling. Um, so we will be back right after this, and thank you for listening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Zamzo Show. I'm Callie Zamzo, your host, and we are talking about wild birds with Heidi Ware Carlisle, the Education Director for Intermountain Bird Observatory. Um, I didn't mention it in the first segment, but um, we are not live today. So if you have questions, you can send them to zamzos at zamzos.com. You can ask us bird questions, and we will do our best to answer. If it is a deeper question, we will pass it on to Heidi, and she will help us answer it. Hmm. So, um, so yeah, please ask ask us our questions, uh, any questions that you might have, and we will happily answer those. Okay, so when we left off, we were talking about birds in the cold and um, taking care of them. So are there things that change um, physically or metabolically, I guess, with with wild birds during wintertime? Yeah, and one of my favorite stories that I tell my students uh, is that birds change the length of their intestines uh, based on the season. So birds, it was first studied in, that I know of in yellow-rumped warblers here um, in North America, and so... In the summertime, yellow-rimmed warblers are up in the trees, like at Bogus Basin and at our Lucky Peak Station, and they're eating lots of insects, and those are really easy to digest, so they have very short intestines during that time of year. And birds are like backpackers. They are not going to carry any extra weight if they don't have to. Mm. So their intestines are nice and short, but then in the wintertime, yellow-rimmed warblers switch over to eating those juniper berries that we were talking about earlier. Um, and those are a little bit harder to digest. They're kind of fibrous. They're hard. And so yellow-rumped warblers will grow a longer length of intestine to digest that harder-to-digest food Interesting. Um, in the wintertime. So they have to spend that extra energy to grow those intestines and then extra energy to actually digest that tougher-to-digest food. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, working a little bit harder. Huh. 
So, so that makes me very curious. It's probably uh, more in depth than we can probably explain on here. Mm-hmm. But are they so they're actually growing additional tissue, and then what do they kind of are they able to just absorb in some of that tissue as they're making them smaller? Is yeah, that how they that basically works? like. I mean, this isn't exactly how it works, but they basically are digesting their own bodies in the springtime, shrinking up those intestines uh, when they don't need them anymore when the insects come back. So, yeah, very impressive and so weird to me. It's fascinating. It is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I love this kind of stuff. It's uh, very cool. (laughs) Um, That's awesome. Um, Okay. So are there, what what kind of birds are we going to be seeing on our on mm-hmm. our feeders this time of year, in, in the Treasure Valley anyway. Yeah, I'm, well, I think the best-known one is probably the dark-eyed junco, uh, which I grew up calling them snowbirds because they show up when it gets cold. Ah. Uh, so they're a species that nests up in the mountains. So if you're out camping in the summertime, you'll see them uh, in the forests of Idaho. But in the wintertime, they drop down. So they're what's called an elevational migrant. They're not traveling hundreds of miles. They might only be traveling five miles um, dropping down from the Boise Ridge down into the Treasure Valley. Um, but they drop down here where it's a little bit warmer, there's a, more food, and they love visiting bird feeders. Uh, they're a species that really likes feeding on the ground. So if you can either scatter seed for them or have a nice little platform feeder, uh, you'll get to see dark-eyed juncos. Uh, and they're beautiful. They have little pink beaks, little black or gray caps, depending on if they're a male or a female, uh, and you'll see them hopping around. Okay. Another species to watch out for, or or a group of species, I should say, is finches. So in the wintertime, finches will often show up in the valley. So we'll see our normal house finches and lesser goldfinches and American goldfinches. But we'll add to that mix some pine siskins. And this year, there has been an eruption. So finches, if there's not a lot of food where they normally spend time in the forest they'll come down into the valley. So this year, bird watchers are seeing pine grosbeaks, red crossbills, um, and we're hoping to see um, common red poles this year too. So mm. it's a really big year for a lot of those species. Um, oh yeah, and I also should say, uh, at our Lucky Peak station this fall, we caught a record number of red-breasted nuthatches. Um, sometimes we only catch 20 in a fall, and this year we caught more than 300 oh, wow. um, nuthatches and more than 300 mountain chickadees. So another huge eruption this year um, and species to watch out for. Uh, red-breasted nuthatches do this little call. Okay. And so you'll hear them and be like, wait a minute, what in the world is that? Uh, and you might see them up in a conifer tree. So, yeah, folks should jef- definitely keep their eyes out for them. Uh, and both the nuthatches and mountain chickadees really like uh, sunflower seeds. So if you can get black oil sunflower seeds, I know Zamzos sells those. Yeah. Uh, you'll see a little nuthatch or a chickadee fly in, grab a seed, and then fly off. Uh, they'll go off into the trees to eat it. So they're pretty fun little guys. Okay. I, you know, I started, um, this This has just happened over the last three years, but I've started growing sunflowers in my uh, yard. Yeah. And then just, like, at first, first time I, I grew some, I was so mad because the squirrels and the birds <laughs> got at them. And I was like, darn it, mm-hmm. they're ruining them. And now I do it on purpose. I'm like, well, they're, they're only going to look like this for a short period of time because all yeah. these wonderful animals are going to come and eat them. And, and so now I, I actually grow them for that very purpose. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they love sunflowers. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. Okay, so let's go back really quickly. You you used a word erupting. Yeah. And so just for people listening at home, that's not 
I'm not gonna spell it right. You guys don't not, talk about that every day. It's not an <laughs> eruption. It's an it's it's, it's with an I mm-hmm. erupting, yeah. right? Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit like what you kind of dropped that? What does that mean, and and why is that important? Yeah, good question. So, uh, you know, I'll always relate it back to the research that IBO does, but we do a lot of migration research where we're studying birds. You know, the typical oh yeah, birds fly south in the winter and north in the spring. Uh, And a lot of birds follow this sort of scheduled migration based on day length. So they do the same journey every year. But there's species that are eruptive species. So they move or migrate based on the conditions depending on the year and usually related to food. So species that we study, you know, I mentioned red-breasted nuthatches and the chickadees, uh, but also the northern saw-wet owls, which are one of the most common owls we study in fall migration. They only move if the rodent populations uh, dictate that. So either if there's a lot of rodents in the springtime and there's then there's lots of baby owls and then those baby owls have to go find somewhere to live. Mm. So we'll have a big eruption of young owls moving through uh, or the opposite. So if there's hardly any uh, rodents or mice in an area, the owls have to leave to go find food somewhere else, and so they'll they'll move around based on those uh, f- that food resource, basically. Interesting. Um, so yeah, very different dynamic, and we're actually very curious because a lot of species this year had an what we would call an eruptive year where we saw way way more than we normally see. Um, so to us, it's very interesting that all of them are kind of doing that in the same season. Usually, we would only see a couple species doing that at a time. Interesting. Um, yeah. So this might be going too deep, but, and just say so if you're like oh, yeah, sure. tapping out on this. Um, but so are, do you sometimes when you're, I'm, this is, I, now I'm thinking this is maybe a dumb question, whatever, I'm just going to ask. <laughs> so when you're observing these eruptions mm-hmm. that are taking place, do you, you, I'm assuming you're asking questions like why, do you mm-hmm. ever connect back like things that are happening in the environment, things that people are doing? Thing, like, Do you ever, like, are you guys sometimes the first to, be like, ooh, this is this must be happening, or we're able to figure out this data, and this must be happening, you know, and yeah. that you see it in the birds before you see it in other areas. Yeah, I would say, I don't want to say IBO is the first, because what tends to happen is partway through the migration season, we'll start messaging all our other biologist friends sure, and be like, hey, wait, are you guys seeing this too? Are we imagining this? Are there way more nuthatches <laughs> this year? Um, and talking to each other, so... This year was a fun example, um, a biologist from Rocky Point Bird Observatory, which is um, in Vancouver, BC, emailed us, you know, hey, how's it going? Uh, We caught 80 owls last night, and we were just curious if this happened to you guys. And at that point, actually, we said no. We're like, oh, no, we've caught some, but not that many. Well, a week later, I emailed her back, "Uh, yeah, our (laughs) owl crew caught 80 owls last night. Um, and so we're, we're seeing the same patterns and this is the time of year I love because we're crunching the numbers, uh, all through the season, we have a sense, you know, okay, Mm -hmm. this seems like what's going on now is when we're doing our final reports and really understanding what's going on. Um, I'll plug really quick. You can actually Google, uh, there's some, a group that creates a finch forecast. So they're looking at, uh, cone crops. So the cones on conifer trees up North dictate uh, whether the finches are going to erupt in a given year. And so there's very, very well-known patterns with that for the finch species that we are looking at. So Cool. Yeah. 
Oh, this is great. I'm glad I asked that question. Hmm. Thank you. Um, it is time for a break. You are listening to the Zamzo Show, and we are talking with Heidi Weir Carlisle with the Intermountain Bird Observatory, and we're talking about wild birds. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back with the Zamzo Show. I'm your host today, Callie Zamzo, and I am here talking with Heidi Ware Carlisle with the Intermountain Bird Observatory. And um, we just had an interesting conversation during the break, and so I <laughs> want to recreate this. So I, I just brought up with you, Heidi, that so I, I'm also a Boise State graduate. Um, I Go fancy Broncos. myself yes, I fancy <laughs> myself a scientist from the biology department, mm -hmm. and I was I was sharing with you that I loved the the process that that scientists go through where you develop these hypotheses and, and then you begin to try to figure out and get to the bottom of it. But there is this sort of exchange amongst, and, and in your situation, it's other bird biologists, ornithologists, I guess I should yeah. say, um, where, where you might say, hey, what about this? And have you experienced this? And that sort of thing. So will you share with us the little story that you just told me? Um, well, I'll just turn it over to you. Oh, yeah, the story. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I was saying, you know, sometimes we have a nice answer. So with the finch forecast, Oh, yeah, the finches are erupting this year because the cone crop is different. Um, but sometimes we don't always have the answer, and that's when we start kind of talking with our other scientist friends and trying to figure it out. Uh, and this year we had a super, super low year for ruby-crowned kinglets, which are a tiny little songbird uh, that we normally catch. They're normally our number one species we catch each fall, thousands. And we only caught a few hundred this year. Mm. So we were a little bit worried, and... But then we were talking to our friends at uh, University of Montana, and they said they actually had their best year ever for ruby crown kinglets. So that actually made it even more confusing. So, you know, if they just didn't do well and maybe didn't have that many babies in a given year, uh, that's a pretty easy answer. Oh, yeah, breeding season didn't do well. But now we have this question of, well, wait a minute. They did well over there, but not here. Did they move? What were they doing? And so, you know, we're still trying to piece that together. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of the fun and interesting part. I always tell kids that for me as a scientist, it's almost like being a detective. So yes, you get to come up with questions and then sleuth out the answers or at least try to. Um, Absolutely. And that process, I think, is, is something that's really exciting for me and something I try to convey, you know, in the outreach work that we do, too, is letting kids ask those questions and, and think about that process too. It's fun. This science is, um, it's a little different than like chemistry where you're in a lab. Mm -hmm. Your lab is, is the world. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and, and there's so many, you can't, there, there are variables you can't control oh, in the totally. wild. So, so coming to the bottom of something, that can be a Rubik's cube that is very difficult to solve. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure that there are things that go on, I mean, probably decades where you're still mm -hmm. trying to solve issues of, of, you know, various things. And then as you're trying to solve it, the variables change again. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's constantly, constantly moving, but, oh, totally. um, but fun. Really fun. I mean, the, for those of us who think yeah. that's fun, it's, I suppose it's a little nerdy too, but that's yeah. all right. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I, I find that very interesting. Um, okay, so um, is there, did I, I ask you who we would, who, what what sort of birds we would see at our yeah. feeders. What are some of the birds that we will not see at our feeders that we maybe see in summertime, but mm -hmm. that, that, are, that go elsewhere in wintertime? Yeah, so a lot of our migratory species leave us. Um, especially a group of birds called neotropical migrating birds. So things like yellow warblers um, and some of our longer distance birds that rely on insects, they have to leave in the wintertime because there's not enough insect uh, insects to support them. 
Um, another species that uh, I got to throw out a species for the raptor uh, folks, Swainson's hawks. They're a species that actually migrates all the way down to Patagonia in Argentina in the wintertime. Oh, wow. Um, and they eat grasshoppers, which seems so weird for a hawk. Um, but yeah, they live in Idaho in the summertime, and then they are long gone by now. They're way far south of us, so <laughs> we won't see them again until uh, the spring. They'll come back to us. They're legit snowbirds. They, yeah. They get out of here. <laughs> yeah. I like their style. <laughs> yeah, right? Wouldn't that be nice? I always tell folks, you know, yellow warbler or our Wilson's warblers that we study, they they don't have to buy a plane ticket. Mm-hmm. They have to, they just eat as much as they possibly can, get super duper fat, and that's their free ticket down to, you know, Mexico or Central America. And then by the time they get there, they've lost all that fat. They're ready to party all winter long. <laughs> but I'm sure they think it's, I'm sure it's hard work for them to survive in the winter too, but party in the warm weather all winter long and then come back to us in the spring. Yeah, it's so. not a bad lifestyle. Yeah. I, I, I commend them on that one. <laughs> Um, is there, it seems like such an interesting thing, This and this is, I suppose, a, maybe this is a question for God, um, but I'll give, I'll give it to you anyway. That's, that's, how's that? Um, I, I, so why, what, why does it make sense for a bird? Why wouldn't a bird just stay down there? Why wouldn't mm-hmm. they just, why are they coming clear up? Ooh, why would they come all the way up to um, Idaho for part of the year and then go all the way back down to, you know, South America for the rest of the part of the year? Like, oh, why, yeah. Why is that? Well, so people have had different theories about why migration evolved, right? Like, why did birds start migrating to begin with? Um, So the why is the tough-to-answer question. The short answer um, for how it makes sense is the tropics, you know, we think about it as, oh, this rich bounty of food. But actually, the tropics, the food supply is slow but steady. So Mm. there's not a ton of food available, but it's always there. In Idaho in the springtime, like just think about spring, which is maybe hard to do in the winter right now, but (laughs) that explosion of life and the green plants and all the insects are coming back, that is like the all-you-can-eat buffet, amazing food resource. Um, So one of my favorite examples of this is uh, my best friend and I were in graduate school together and she was studying brewer's sparrows. They're this little kind of boring brown bird. Um, and they live out in the sagebrush and we were watching them and in the springtime there's aphids all over the sagebrush and she's from Spain and she was saying she's like it's like they're slurping spaghetti (laughs) the brewer sparrows will just come up to the sagebrush and slurp all these aphids off of the sagebrush so you know maybe we think of Idaho and the desert as you know just this dry barren area but it really has this flush of life in the spring and summertime um so yeah these birds are leaving in the winter because there's not food but then they're coming back to Idaho because man right when they need the most food when they're having laying eggs and having babies there's tons and tons of food available for them okay so the trade-off is worth it um and birds are always about those trade-offs right so for some species, the trade-off isn't worth it, and they stay like juncos. Sure, um, but yeah, so they're always they're always kind of threading that balance of survival and and choosing what makes the most sense for them. Nice, great answer. Thank oh, you. Thanks. That was very interesting. <laughs> um, okay, so 
Let's see. How about, let's just talk a little bit about the Diane Moore Nature Center. Yeah. Um, So can you tell our our audience a little bit about what that is, where it's located, and kind of what's going on with that right now? Yeah. So uh, the Diane Moore Nature Center, it's a property, it's right along the Boise River, where the big Highway 21 bridge comes kind of near Micron and heads up towards Lucky Peak. Um, And right under that huge bridge, we have about 20 acres where we're doing a lot of bird research, um, habitat restoration, and we're building uh, walking trails. So soon there will be trails and interpretive signage down there for people to spend time. So in the summertime, I say, come on down. We're doing tons of research down there. So you'll meet our scientists. You'll get to see birds up close. And we're doing a lot of planting, so putting plants in the ground for habitat. In the wintertime, we're not down there doing research, but it's a beautiful place to walk. Um, especially because right along the Boise River, you can often see bald eagles. Um, Mm. So really cool place. Right now, we have put in a side channel of the river. So there's there's water flowing through the property. And you can hop, skip, and jump across it um, if you're adventurous. But in December, I'm very excited to share that we're looking forward to hopefully starting construction on a crossing there. So there will soon be a bridge to give you better access to the Diane Moore Nature Center nice. um, to walk around and see all the amazing birds down there. So Fantastic. Yeah. I know that um, Zamzos has a partnership um, yeah. as, as part of that and um, supporting the, the work that's being done down there. And it, it's wonderful. I Diane Moore um, was a big, just a bird yeah. enthusiast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She loved uh, birds and nature and also was really passionate about getting kids outside. Um, so that's great because... You know, that's our whole goal with the Diane Moore Nature Center is providing a place where our community and kids can come spend time outdoors and, and learn about science and nature. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. It's it's hands-on learning and real-life learning. It's, yeah. Um, and I think it can get our kids excited about science earlier because it's I mean, it's just more fun. Oh, totally. More fun to be outside. <laughs> um, my daughter's school does some volunteer work down there on occasion, and so uh, she always loves it when she gets to be outside and down there doing work at the yeah. Diane Moore yeah, Nature cool. Center. Okay, well, we're ready for another break. I can't believe it. So um, you are listening to The Zamzo Show. We're talking with Heidi Ware Carlisle um, uh, from the Intermountain Bird Observatory about wild birds, and we will be back after this break. Welcome back. You're listening to The Zamzo Show, and this is Callie Zamzo, your host today. And we're talking about wild birds with Heidi Ware Carlisle with the Intermountain Bird Observatory. And we're having a great conversation. This is a lot of fun. I'm enjoying myself today. Are you? Yeah, thanks for having Good. me. Yeah, it. absolutely. Um, okay, so let's um, let's take a little little switcheroo here. And, and can we talk a little bit about, because um, people, I think, a lot of people have already kind of put their they're landscaping to bed, but mm-hmm. but some people like me, and I will fully admit it. If my neighbors are listening, they're probably like tisk tisk. But I have not done any cleanup in my yard yet. So could you talk to us a little bit about um, yard cleanup and how that affects birds? Yeah. Um, so for birds, a lot of them are relying on insects, especially in the summertime. And this time of year, a lot of insects are looking for places to overwinter. So they're crawling into little tree bark crevices or under leaves. And so if you can, uh, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> we finally cleared off, you know, the center of our lawn uh, this last weekend. Uh, but if you're putting away your leaves um, or trimming things, uh, I was complimenting my parents on trimming their echinaceas uh, earlier this week. 
uh, because if you can leave some of that out over the winter, it's a good excuse to not have to clean up your garden and it leaves places for insects to hide over the winter, often beneficial insects. So things like bumblebee queens over winter underneath piles of leaves um, and a lot of our spiders that will be eating those insect pests in the spring over winter um, in those cracks and crevices. So yeah, be lazy, leave some of those, <laughs> you know, your ornamental grasses or your echinacea stems out over the winter um, to provide that space for insects. Um, if you can rake some leaves off into, you know, bark chip areas or save a little corner of your yard, that's a great way too to um, provide some of that habitat for birds. And it does break. I mean, leaves break down over winter as well. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, if you have a super thick pile, you're going to have a little different story. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but leaving some there, they will. You'll be amazed at how they do break down over winter. And so you don't yeah. necessarily have to do a bunch of cleanup in the spring either. So yeah, exactly. It's not bad. I also I have a couple of um, grasses, like big, tall grasses. And I, yeah. I leave those as well. I've noticed that their birds sometimes will kind of like go in underneath mm -hmm. like kind of protective areas and things like that so it's not again I'm sure my neighbors are like please just cut those <laughs> down but I do leave some of those yeah um, to, for a place for birds to hang out and, and others I yeah, think the totally. squirrels like it a little too you know there's just little <laughs> places where they can particularly when it gets really cold I feel like they're little absolutely places they can hang out yeah anyway sorry neighbors <laughs> <laughs> um, well thank you for answering that um, so okay so could we also take a little, I think it's kind of in that same realm. Can you talk to us a little bit about Christmas trees? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like a, we're jumping to a different topic, but I promise it connects. Yeah, trees, birds, <laughs> there's a connection. Yeah, so uh, I always try to buy a fresh Christmas tree because uh, it's my excuse to provide extra shelter for the birds in the wintertime. So after we're done with our tree for Christmas, for the Christmas season, what my husband and I will do is put that tree out um, in our yard right near where we feed the birds. So it's providing this great little dense shelter and we see it immediately as soon as we put our Christmas tree out there, especially the juncos. They love to fly in there. They'll be twittering around, kind of fighting with each other, um, hiding in that nice little shelter. So providing shelter for birds is great when you're feeding them because uh, hawks also love bird feeders. And so when that Cooper's hawks swings through looking for a tasty meal if you have a little shelter there that gives the the little songbirds a fighting chance to go hide um, but it also provides warmth so a lot of birds will roost in really dense um, piles of twigs or conifer trees or christmas trees um, if you leave those out so it's a little a little way to you know celebrate the holidays and then also give back to the birds a little bit afterwards. Do you do you literally put it like is it upright or do you do you lay it down on its side or like how where do you? Oh, uh, we've done both. It kind of depends okay. on how big our tree is. But so you're just creating a shelter, you're yeah. just creating a little little area where they can go. And... Yeah. Okay. If it's a really tall one, we usually just lay it down flat, and that gives a lot of space for the birds. Okay. Well, I'm going to do a quick plug for my brother too because he makes a big fuss about um, real trees versus <laughs> fake ones because a real tree is a hundred percent compostable and yeah. you, they break down whereas you know the, the plastic ones I know <laughs> when we eventually get rid of them they just end up in the landfill yeah. that cannot be recycled so yeah. um so there you go Joss that that was a little gift for you <laughs> um okay so how about mating displays are there any mm -hmm. interesting mating displays or anything regarding mating with with birds that happen this time of year 
Not really. So I mentioned the towns in solitaire. They do sing in the wintertime mm-hmm. um, to defend a territory. But one of the coolest things, I think, is this is the time of year that sets off the start of the breeding season. So birds rely on day length to know what time of year it is, right? They don't have a calendar or clock or watch. And they're using the shortest day of the year to tell them when spring is going to start. So their little brain has an internal clock that flips a switch and tells them, okay, in, you know, whatever, three months, I need to start singing and then I need to attract a mate and I need to build a nest. So all of that is hinging on what's happening right now in the middle of winter when the breeding season isn't anywhere close. So I love that thinking about all these little bird brains on the solstice are going to switch over and say, all right, it's time. The days are going to get longer. You know, spring is coming. So I love thinking about that. On the darkest night of winter, the birds are already thinking about spring. Yeah, I I, I, I might have a little bird brain. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, get, I get a little bit depressed um, oh, when totally. the summer solstice happens and we start the days start getting shorter and mm-hmm. shorter from there. But then I get start to get happy yeah. when it flips over on the other. I'm like, okay, it's all uphill from here. Like it's all going to get start getting longer. And like, you know, so I, yeah. I think I've got a little of that in myself. I mean, us <laughs> mammals, we're supposed to like rest and eat and not do anything in the winter time so i think it's totally true our brains know that yeah like all right it's time to hibernate (laughs) (laughs) it's good stuff it's good stuff yeah um okay well so let's talk a little bit about um the Intermountain Bird Observatory and how if people have been listening to this and they're riveted and they yeah. want to be involved, what are some things that that our listener might be able to do to get involved? Yeah. Uh, so our most exciting stuff happens, you know, starting in May and June when we'll be doing bird research again. Uh, but you can start by getting involved with us, signing up for our newsletter. We're That's the thing I'm working on the most right now is putting our newsletter together um, with our other biologist, Heather. Um So if you can sign up now, you'll get our newsletter, which has all the information about what we've done this year. It's a great way to sort of get an idea of what we do and how people can get involved. You can also go on our website and sign up to be on our volunteer email list. And I'll ping you occasionally. Uh, Like I just sent out an email. Hey, I need help proofing data. Who wants to do that? Um, But coming in the spring, we'll be sending out emails. Hey, we're going to be doing planting days, um, you know, Zamzos is helping support some habitat restoration. Uh, so we'll be sending out emails in, you know, March looking for uh, habitat volunteers. So yeah, it's a great time of year to learn more about us, get our newsletter and and start thinking about spring because it'll be here before you know it. It will. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So your website, what is the website? Uh, it's boisestate.edu slash IBO. Okay. Um, or you can just Google Intermountain Bird Observatory and, and you can find us on, we're on Instagram and Facebook too, so you can follow us there. Oh, and I, I highly recommend that they do that because the pictures are so much fun and, and what you guys are doing. Oh, I, sometimes things will pop up and I'll be like, wow, <laughs> you know, I didn't know you were working on this, you know, yeah. so it's, it's really fun. It's well worth doing for sure. Um, very cool. All right. So, and then how about if somebody just we're lousy with a little bit of cash right now and wanted to <laughs> donate. Um, is that, would they also go to your website for that? Yes, you can go to our website um, and up at the top, there's a donate uh, tab. So you can click that. We're definitely looking for support for the Diane Moore Nature Center, developing those trails, our outreach projects. Um, we also have a couple new projects. Uh, there's a goshawk project and a crossbill project that are looking for support. Uh, so you can go to our website and find all of that information too. Um, 
some of our projects were were selling t-shirts so instead oh, of just a donation you get a cool shirt so nice you can check that out too i love it well this has been a wonderful conversation as always thank you for taking the time to come and talk with us and yeah, share thanks. this information with our listeners this has been great yeah um you've been listening to the zamzo show we've been talking with Heidi Ware Carlisle from the Intermountain Bird Observatory. (laughs) I'm starting and and finishing the same way. Um, (laughs) Thank you again for being here with us today. And thank you to our listeners for listening today. And enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next week.